welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. Last week, we talked about systemic racism in Canada's criminal justice system, and one part of that system is policing. Police are the first point of contact for many people, and there are some major issues across the country around how police interact with communities of color, particularly Black and Indigenous people. During last year's Black Lives Matter movement, another call was being loudly shouted in the streets, which was, defund the police. Of course, there are a lot of questions about what this means. Do we abolish the police entirely? Do we decrease their annual budgets? That are paid for by taxpayers, by the way. Today, we are going to break down what this movement means and the different ways defunding the police could look like. So, let's start with the definition. Well, actually, there are a few ways that the defund the police movement has been framed, and it really does sit along the spectrum. The defund the police movement was born out of the Black Lives Matter advocacy. It is a direct response to police killings disproportionately of people of color. In Canada, this is mostly Black and Indigenous people. According to a journal by Clark Merrifield called Defund the Police, what it means and what the research says, For some, defund the police is a movement, a stepping stone toward abolishing police departments entirely. For others, it's the idea of defunding the police limited to simply restricting money from military-style equipment that they currently use. And for others, the definition lies in the middle. Some people believe that there should be a police, but that their role in communities should be limited to crime prevention. Through all of the different definitions, the central idea is that service agencies other than the police could and should respond to nonviolent calls related to, for example, mental health, housing, or other issues. Canadian author and activist Robin Maynard defines this movement as a political strategy geared toward moving funding away from police. Her perspective is on the spectrum closer to abolishing the police outright. She says, in quotes, defunding is a strategy that is part of a broader movement geared toward reimagining safety and security in our society. It's about transitioning not only funding, but power, equipment, and force away from forces of state violence and repression and committing to invest instead in community-centered forms of safety. Robert Maynard says it best, so listen to a clip of how she thinks defunding the police could really benefit society. Reducing funds, reducing power, reducing scope, demilitarization, and these are some, and again not all, of some of the really crucial tenets that of course is also geared towards building safe alternatives, building safety. So if we understand policing as a kind of violence, of course, defunding the police as a movement is about ending violence. It's about ending harm and understanding police as one of those harms, but of course not the only one. So it means actually choosing as a society to invest in things like community-led anti-violence initiatives, like 24-hour childcare, like safe beds for people experiencing alcohol and drug intoxication, like health promotion programs and restorative justice uh, workers trained to manage conflict and mediation, free TTC instead of uh, funding transit enforcement. There are so many ways to end and approach an end to violence in this society that continue to be underfunded or underaddressed as we see the mass billions and billions of dollars that are going towards the policing of our communities. So her definition of defunding the police 
is about investing differently. By reducing the reliance on policing, it minimizes the impact of polices on communities. Wherever people fall on the spectrum, the defund movement is not a new concept. We're going to focus on the more current conversations that have come out of the Black Lives Matter movement more recently. At the heart of the defund police movement is that for years, police have been saying they will do more and do better about the disproportionate and deadly interactions with people of color. But this, unfortunately, has come to very, very little action. It's clear that the police are unable or are incapable of changing themselves. So this defund the police movement is a more radical response that has come from organizers and advocates. If you can't serve everyone and serve them safely, then you should be defunded and or abolished. As I said, there are different interpretations for what the defund the police movement means and can look like. Going back to Clark Merrifield, in his piece, he spoke to scholars, community organizers, and criminologists to hear a range of perspectives on defunding the police. From some scholars' point of view, the defund the police movement means reallocating or redirecting funding away from the police department to other government agencies funded by the local municipality. That's according to University of Maryland sociologist Rashawn Ray. According to some other scholars, including law professors Stephen Ruchin and Roger Michalski, defunding the police could increase crime rates, hamper efforts to control officer misconduct, and reduce officer safety. They propose instead of defunding police departments, states redistribute policing funds equitably to localities, including money for officer training and accountability efforts. From the organizer's point of view, an activist and educator named Mariam Kaba was quoted as saying, Yes, we mean literally abolish the police. She also says in quotes, We can't reform the police. The only way to diminish police violence is to reduce contact between the public and the police. We are not abandoning our communities to violence. We don't want to just close police departments. We want to make them obsolete. From a criminologist's point of view, there's a criminologist named Brooklyn Hitchens. He is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland. And from his point of view, he says, in quote, I do feel police are deeply corrupt and troubled, and I don't know how to work within a system that is that corrupt. At its core, defund the police is about reallocation of funds to more social service-based agencies, whether it's housing or mental health. Another criminologist, Peter Moskos, at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, questions why money for expanding social services should come from police officers. In quotes, he says, I'm all for funding mental health issues and homeless issues, but the idea that it has to come from the 5% of city budgets that goes to law enforcement is absurd. So as you can see, there is a wide range of opinions, no matter what field you come from, about what it means to defund the police and how this can be done effectively. Since the death of George Floyd, there have been nearly two dozen United States cities who have taken steps to reduce police funding or redirect funds towards other services. And some U.S. departments are welcoming this shift in police responsibility away from non-criminal situations and traffic enforcement. Bill Bratton, a former Los Angeles police chief, told the crime report, in quotes, the police would be very happy to get rid of responsibilities which were forced upon them in the first place. We created the homeless problem 
when we closed down mental institutions back in the 1970s, but there was no funding for the homeless. This is also a sentiment that a lot of police officers have shared. In the research, we've come across a lot of different police chiefs from cities across the United States who have shared that they would be happy to have some responsibilities taken off of them because, unfortunately, a lot of the ways that mental health and addiction issues are dealt with is to just call the police to deal with it, which they're not always trained in. That is a very United States kind of approach. We haven't come across that level of detail when it comes to the Canadian context, but it wouldn't be much of a stretch to assume that similar issues are happening in Canada as well. As we look across the country and over at least the last few years, there have been less resources dedicated towards helping people with mental health issues, helping people with addiction issues, and unfortunately, our police and prison system has been kind of a catch-all to control or manage people who are struggling with those issues. And in general, do you think defunding the police is just an American issue? Although some of the stats and quotes that I've shared are coming from the U.S. context, You'd be wrong to think that police brutality and systemic racism in policing doesn't happen here, too. On June 4, 2020, a young woman from the Clockwatt First Nations community named Chantal Moore was shot and killed by a police officer in Edmonston, New Brunswick, after being called to her residence for a wellness check. The actions of the officer involved were found to be, in quotes, reasonable under the circumstances, and he was not charged with any crime. Between 2007 and 2017, Indigenous people represented one-third of people shot to death by RCMP police officers. And as we covered last week, an Ontario Human Rights report in, from 2018 found that Black people were 20 times more likely to be shot and killed by the police compared to a white person. Did you know we are always looking for community organizations to collaborate with? If you have any kind of events that you want to share out on this podcast or through our social media, please feel free to get in touch and we'd be happy to do that. You can contact us through email, nononsensepodcast at gmail.com, K-N-O-W. Also linked in the show notes. We can't wait to hear more from you. So why does police brutality against Indigenous and Black people continue to happen? Well, it is a symptom of the structural racism that exists within Canadian society. Both Indigenous and Black people are disproportionately overrepresented in several areas used to measure structural racism. We've covered in the past, I'll go over it again, Indigenous children represent 7.7% of all children in this country but they represent 52% of all foster children in the child welfare system. Both Black and Indigenous people continue to face higher rates of poverty and unemployment than the rest of Canada. Last week, we talked about this. Despite Indigenous people representing only 4.1% of the population in Canada, they represent one-third of provincial and federal correctional services admissions. They are incarcerated far more than any group in Canada. And this kind of systemic racism isn't a recent phenomenon. If you think about the very long history of policing in Canada, it might help you to understand how we got to this point. Canada's National Mountain Police were formed in 1873, 
and they were then called the Northwest Mounted Police. They were created just six years after the creation of Canada. The Northwest Mounted Police was the original name and would become the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Our RCMP have been modeled after the British Empire's Royal Irish Constabulary. In fact, in 1899, some RCMP officers took part in the Second Boer War in South Africa to assist the British Empire. We often hear that the RCMP were created to protect Indigenous people from marauding Americans, but this hides the colonial project tied to the formation of the RCMP. They have always been a central player and have had a central role in expanding and maintaining Canada's borders and facilitating the development of infrastructure. Canada needed a paramilitary organization to enforce their laws, such as the Dominion Lands Act of 1872 and the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1869. Both of these were designed to control Indigenous peoples and to redistribute lands in violation of a number of treaties. In 1874, Canadian Minister of Justice A. Dorian admitted that the RCMP's mission was in part to, in quotes, give confidence to peaceable Indians and intending settlers. There has never been a peaceful relationship between the RCMP and Indigenous peoples. In 1885, the RCMP's first full-scale operation was launched against the Métis and Cree resistance in what is now Saskatchewan. It resulted in several horrible defeats for the RCMP at the hands of Indigenous warriors at the battles of Duck Lake, Fort Pitt, Fish Creek, Cut Knife, and Frenchman's Boot. In Inuit territory, the RCMP killed thousands of sled dogs, which were a crucial spiritual and practical relation of the Inuit people. And historically, this has been a strategy to deprive Indigenous people of their means of subsistence and spiritual life. You might be wondering what fewer police means for public safety. You might be thinking fewer cops means more crime. There is some evidence that higher police presence can reduce crime, but there's also evidence that higher police presence increases some types of crime. A March 2021 paper in the Review of Economics and Statistics examined exactly this. What would happen when patrol cars in Dallas, Texas were called away from their usual beats in 2019? The economist Sarah Weisberg associated a 10% decrease in Dallas police car patrols away from their beats with a 7% increase in crime. Research published in September 2017's Nature Human Behavior found that a certain type of proactive policing could increase crime though, specifically aggressive policing of low-level offenses like panhandling, loitering, broken windows, stuff like that. Something else to think about when thinking about police and crimes is that crimes are still happening now when we have very large, well-equipped police forces. When do cops really get called? It's usually right after a crime has been committed. So how useful are cops in decreasing crime? There have been a few incidences where I've had to call the cops to report a crime that I've witnessed or something that had happened to me. And a few times, cops never showed up at all. So take what you will from that. The debate around defunding the police forces us to rethink the police system entirely. 
Let's talk about a case out of Camden, New Jersey. This is an example of a city that reframed its approach to policing and reducing crime. In 2013, Camden disbanded its police force after one of the city's most violent years on record. Camden County took over and in May 2013 formed a new department, the Camden County Police Department, to patrol the city. The CCPD adopted community-based policing tactics, along with new technology, such as a video observation platform that covered a six-block radius. The result was that overall crime per 100,000 Camdenites decreased by more than half from 2012 to 2020. The number of shooting homicides fell by 68%. Funding and community engagement were major factors in this success. I should also say, though, that the city is still poor and distressed, so the root causes of crime have not been fully addressed. There is more work to be done, but these kinds of results are pretty incredible. And when we talk about community-based approaches to decreasing crimes, it's about providing alternatives to policing services. For example, mental health resources, traffic services, investigative services, by law enforcement. Let's break some of these down a little bit. When we talk about mental health, police are often the first point of access to mental health for underfunded communities. We've seen cases across North America where when someone is in a state of mental duress, the police are called to handle it, which puts people's lives at risk. For example, in Canada, Andrew Loku, a black man from Toronto, was in mental health distress when police were called and he died at the hands of the police. Pierre Coriolan from Montreal, Howard Hyde in Halifax, and these were all in 2019. The defund the police argument is that resources can be reallocated towards new community emergency services that support mental health needs of community members. Police are not adequately trained when it comes to handling people with mental health issues. So why not redirect some of the funds from the police agencies towards community services that can actually address these challenges? When we talk about bylaw enforcement, such as parking and other like minor by law infractions, a lot of this is really served to criminalize poverty because it's people who are getting charged for loitering, panhandling, sleeping in public, public intoxication, for example. Often these people are given fines or and police are called to manage them, but we should be instead funding warm places for them to sleep and addressing the very real housing shortage that we have across this country. Providing clean and accessible public toilets, free transportation, and harm reduction sites would also be ways to address these challenges that people are facing. So what is the way forward? It's really about holding systems accountable. There are very real systemic structural issues in our society that we need to address, and policing is not the answer for those challenges. There needs to be demonstrated commitment at the highest level by federal, provincial, and municipal governments, all working together towards addressing structural racism across all of these systems. We've talked about this in the past, but race-based data is something we also really, really need. Another solution that we already have at our fingertips is implementing the recommendations by the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the recommendations that have been provided by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. Implementing the recommendations provided would help stimulate the system-wide changes that are needed to address 
the structural racism that exists in Canada and that is affecting Indigenous people disproportionately. Countless protests have taken place across Canada, but municipalities have been really slow to move forward suggestions on how to defund the police. In Halifax, in March of 2021, the Halifax Board of Police Commissioners passed a motion to accept the terms for the committee to define defunding the police. According to the board, the committee will review research relevant to policing and engage with the public to get their thoughts on what defunding the police means. So they're starting slow, trying to define it, and then who knows, we'll see. In Montreal, in April of this year, Project Montreal, the political party governing Montreal, adopted a motion during their convention calling on the city to review the need for all police officers to carry a firearm and set in motion a pilot project for this purpose. In Edmonton, also April of this year, City Council voted unanimously in favor of having city administration work with police to review and develop a strategy for implementing recommendations from the city's Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force. In this report, there were 14 recommendations, including a freeze to police funding, changing the composition of the police commission to better reflect the community, increasing transparency, and examining ways of preventing unnecessary use of force. In Vancouver, June of last year of 2020, the Vancouver Police Board rejected a request from City Hall to cut 1% from its budgets, which would have amounted to an $8.5 million cut from its $340 million budget. And in Toronto, June of last year, City Council rejected a motion to cut 10% from the Toronto Police Services budget, which would have amounted to a $107 million reduction. The Toronto Police has the biggest police budget in Canada. In 2020, the police budget was $1.22 billion, about 9% of the City of Toronto's operational budget. So, where do you sit on the defund the police movement? Has anything you heard swayed the way you think, one way or the other? No matter where you sit, at the heart of this issue is a very real and timely need for conversations around how our modern policing systems work, who it works for, and how it can be improved if it isn't working for all of us. Policing is rooted in colonization and maintaining a societal status quo. But as societies evolve, so too should our systems. And unfortunately, the police have a long way to go. Beverly Osazua is our researcher. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. And I'm your host, Nuri Yunus. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.